0: Let me encourage you this morning to take your bulletin and look at the front. We very seldom look at the front of a bulletin, glance at it, but I want you to see what it said here, a witness to the resurrection celebrating the life of David Melville Carson. And in that word, we have the purpose of our gathering today. And so I'm sure I speak the mind of Margie and the family in welcoming you for that purpose. For that purpose. So there are going to be many participants, as you can see from the bulletin. And that's appropriate, because David touched so many lives. We're going to hear first of all from his pastor, Pastor Micah Ramsey who serves across the river in the church that David began preaching many years ago Micah has served there now as David's pastor and he will update us on the obituary, the history and then lead us in prayer
1: Micah David Melville Carson went to be with the Lord on August 5, 2010, at the Reformed Presbyterian Home in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He was born January 30, 1922, in Sparta, Illinois, to Melville Kennedy and Faith Coleman Carson. And, was a teenager, and as a teenager, he moved to Seattle, Washington, a city for which he had a lifelong love, he graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Yale University in 1942 and from the Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary in 1945. After seminary, he was ordained to the ministry and installed as pastor of the Eastvale Reformed Presbyterian Church. While a pastor, he taught several courses at Geneva College and discovered his calling and teaching. He taught at Geneva full-time from 1951 and received the PhD in History from the University of Pennsylvania in 1964 and retired in 1992. Many generations of students testify to his ability to engage and challenge in the classroom. He was honored with Geneva's first Teacher of the Year award in 1982 and appointed Samuel A. Starrett Professor of Political Philosophy, a chair held by his grandfather, James M. Coleman. Playing the piano was a lifelong joy, particularly in making music with others, especially his grandchildren. He served on the board of Beaver County Christian School and the Carnegie Free Library of Beaver Falls. Though not a native of Beaver County, he took great interest in local history culminating during his retirement and volunteering at the Vicary House in Freedom. His early love for the Eastvale RP Church never wavered, and he served as a faithful member and elder there as long as he was able. I would add that he was a blessing to the individuals, to the families, to the session, to the congregation, and to the pastors with the wisdom that God had given him. He published three books from the study window, a compilation of essays written for the Christian statesman, Pro Christe et Patre, a history of Geneva College on the occasion of its sesquicentennial, and Transplanted to America, a history of the Reformed Presbyterian Church. I had to read that book, and when I asked him if he was indeed the author, he said, Yes, sorry about that. <laughs> After suffering the cruel losses of Alzheimer's, he is now fully restored in the presence of the Savior he loved and served. He is survived by his wife, Margaret Ewing Weir, whom he married August 22, 1957, daughters Betsy Galen Wilson of Dayton, Ohio, and Christy Bill Townsend of Beaver Falls, grandchildren William, Daniel, and Maggie Townsend. Brother, James Carson of Beaver Falls. Sister, Margaret Delbert McKee of New Wilmington. Brother-in-law, Richard Weir of Braunville, New York. And many nieces and nephews. Pray with me. Our great and powerful Lord, we now gather before you in a bit of sorrow and feeling a a bit of the sting of death and the, the sting of sin, but Father, we also gather before you in joy that we have because of the person and the work of your Son Jesus Christ. Father, we can come now with confidence and we come with expectation of a great resurrection and we come now father thanking you for the great salvation that you gave David Carson we thank you father for the faith that you gave him and the faith that was evident in his life evident in his personal relationships with friends and siblings father evident in his work in your church evident in his teaching as he continuously pointed to your son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, with this great evidence, Father, and with absolute trust in your promise, we do rejoice in you. We rejoice in what you have done, and we rejoice in the complete restoration of your servant, David Carson. As we gather now in his memory, as we gather now, and our mutual faith and trust in you to remember all the great and beautiful things that you have done through your servant David. Now, Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.
0: Well, as we have just heard, and as many of us recall, David loved music. He grew up in the manse out there in Washington, and they sang in their family worship, and so he started singing early, as well as playing the piano. We're gonna be singing Psalm 34, and you have a copy of that, to look at, but you might be interested to know why these Psalms were chosen, and uh, I've been indicated. I have some notes here uh, regarding the choice of Psalm 34. Margaret had a childhood friend. whose name was Fula, and uh, she wrote to Margie and suggested that she and David read Psalm 34 together, and she chose to read it simultaneously as they did, and they did that, and comfort came to all, and may it come to us as we now sing this song. I suggest that we stand to sing, and don't worry about the seats. They will be noisy. Seated? Well, it's appropriate that we hear from A member of the family and a cousin. This is a time to remember, and I'm sure that what these folks will have to say will be quite relevant. So, first of all, we'll listen to Christy Townsend, David's daughter. Christy and Bill, the backup.
2: Maybe I can beat Murphy's Law. I brought the tissues, and if I have them, maybe I won't need them. Thank you all very much for coming. Dad, you know, would have been very embarrassed by all of this, but we know it really isn't about him, but about celebrating him in thanks to the God who created him and gave him to us for a time. Shortly, you'll hear remarks from my dad's colleagues Here are some remarks about my daddy from a daughter's perspective. Did you know that if you bury a pile of chocolate chips at the bottom of a bowl of cream of wheat, it makes little girls want to eat all the way to the bottom of the bowl? (laughs) Dad did. Chocolate chips are a love that Dad and I share. He loved cookies and once said, there's no such thing as a bad cookie. Well, Betsy and I once made a new recipe of molasses cookies. They were awful, (laughs) really awful. We gave one to dad to see what he would say, and he said, this is not a cookie. (laughs) Dad loved interesting architecture, And beautiful waterfalls. Frank Lloyd Wright's falling water was a favorite destination. Evenings growing up were full of music. Who needed TV when I could sing or play my clarinet and have my dad accompany me? Mom Betsy and I often sang together while he played the piano. We considered trying to sing for you today in his memory but knew we'd never get through it. With three women in the house, He would often need a way to communicate to us that it was time to leave to go somewhere. He played the piano. That meant, Dad's ready. (laughs) If you've ever wondered how to define the word long-suffering, just remember Dad dealing with our dog, Pepper. (laughs) The World Book Encyclopedia 1973 edition was common fare at dinner. Somehow, our mealtime conversation often led to some sort of question. Dad would get up from the table and return from the living room with the appropriate volume of the world book to answer the question. Sometimes this would lead to follow-up questions that resulted in more volumes. Some of my childhood friends still teased me about the pile of world books or other reference books that might end up on the floor next to Dad's place at the table. Words were his thing. How patiently he played Scrabble with me, his words being worth 47 points and (laughs) mine (laughs) 8. I beat him once, probably in high school. A few years ago, he found the score sheet from that game and gave it to me george manor how i loved to run up the fire escape and climb in the window to his third floor office where it smelled like paper and typewriter ink he always welcomed me there when i was about eight years old dad was elected to the session of the eastvale church i decided that he didn't have time To fulfill such responsibilities. So I took it upon myself, unbeknownst to dad, to write a letter to the session informing them that he didn't have time to be an elder. (laughs) Dad found out and we cut a deal. He agreed to take me bowling once a month. My dad bowling? (laughs) David Carson bowling? He did it. I don't remember how long we kept it up, but it was more than a year. Heights. He didn't like them. This summer I was nine. We camped across the country to California for Dad to do research at Huntington Library in Pasadena. Of course, as we traveled across the country, we drove along the famous Trail Ridge Road in Colorado. Betsy and I were ooing and aahing at the sights. Mom was driving, Dad was in the front seat staring determinedly at the floor. (laughs) Dad gave us confidence, not by lectures and pronouncements, but by trusting us. He never doubted that we could accomplish something we set out to do. In discussions, we found ourselves conversing with someone who genuinely respected us as worthy of hearty interaction. At one point when I was beginning to realize that differing opinions existed as to the relative value of men versus women, I remember him saying something like, of course I believe women can be as smart as men. Just look at my wife and daughters. After my first month at the American Studies program, I decided to quit and impulsively took the train home from Washington, D.C., Dad didn't get angry or lecture me. He let me have a fun weekend with my friends who were at Geneva. Then the evening that I needed to return, we had family worship, and he had us sing part of Psalm 71. For I will go forth in the strength of thee, Jehovah Lord, thy righteousness and thine alone abroad I will record. How could I stay home after that? He didn't say much, he just drove me to the bus station in Pittsburgh and sent me back. Another time I charged into his office at Ferncliff, full of passion over some issue of doctrine that was causing an uproar in my world. I remember him looking out the window to his left to view the campus from his chair and taking a long, sad sigh. I learned from him that there are more commands in the scripture to love than there are to be right. Dad was a natural mediator. I learned from him that not all questions in life have black and white answers. There are always additional perspectives to consider, and refusing to align oneself completely with a particular side can be the result of immense wisdom, strong ethics, and sound biblical understanding. I learned from Dad that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I have two mental pictures of Dad that will stay with me the rest of my life. grading papers, the eternal pile of light blue notebooks and poli reports. I see him sitting at the east end of the living room couch by the lamp with a pile of those light blue notebooks to grade, two or three red ballpoint pens, and a cup of forgotten coffee on the table next to him, and him kneeling in prayer in the morning at the playroom couch when I would come to him for breakfast before school. Dad often spoke of his gratitude to the Lord for giving him a life work that he loved. Many have said that he was their favorite teacher. He was mine.
0: You see in your bulletin that our next person to share is a cousin and also a colleague. He may not tell you this, but he was in the English department here at Geneva starting many years ago and has served faithfully here, and so he knew David very well, both as a colleague and as a cousin. Norman, we're waiting to hear from you.
3: I'm not standing today, but that's not because I don't want to honor David. I have a physical problem that keeps me from standing uh, very steady, so you'll have to excuse that. From God's word, a proverb. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. How appropriate this statement is, as it describes the relationship that existed throughout many years between David Carson and me. Most of you here know that as an only child adopted into the Carson family, I never had a brother until I discovered my birth family a number of years ago, and therefore my cousin David took on that role happily. I can't count the number of students, Geneva students, who assumed that this was our true relationship, but seldom did I disabuse them of that error, for in truth I counted David as my brother, not only in Christ, but also in the reality of our physical presence here and now. For a moment, turn with me to the past. We find two Carson brothers, David and Will, farming adjoining farms in southern Illinois. And among their other children, a son in each family. In David's family, Melville. In in, uh, Will's family, Charles. Cousins, but as close as brothers, almost an age, sharing their experiences of college life, of the seminary, and eventually the role of the pastorate in the Reformed Presbyterian Church. And down another generation, a grandson, David, and another grandson, his cousin, myself. Early on, we agreed that we would meet each week to share our concerns and to pray. We met then for several years in the none-too-hospitable, dank confines of Ferncliff Basement. The sharing and praying ranged widely. Our personal lives, our families, the college, administration, faculty, staff, and in particular our students, many of whom we shared. And we shared a mutual interest in genealogy. Now the basis for that interest came from a slim volume entitled The Moffats of Bally Bay. Bally Bay being a small village in County Monaghan Republic of Ireland. And this book told us much about the root and stock of the Carson family. And then we also found ourselves involved in the history and relationship of literally dozens of families in the Covenanter Church. It's not a matter of gossip, certainly one of interest, for David had at his fingertips an immense store of knowledge of these matters. We shared our interest in cemeteries, for David knew more about more graveyards than anyone I ever knew. And my last quality experience with David occurred a year or so ago when we took him to visit the Jefferson County Cemetery of his McGarry forebears, and it was a joy to witness his evident pleasure in that trip. A constantly fascinating topic was, in David's own words, the ethos of the Reformed Presbyterian Church, so mysterious to many of our fellow faculty members. It was a topic that was admirably suited to David's keen interest in history, a topic not only of great interest to us both, but in truth also a topic which created certain distress in both of us as we saw the church develop over the years. And literature, my field of endeavor at Geneva, was one deeply loved by David as well and has been mentioned many times already, music in which he reveled. He far exceeded my slim talents as he became a much sought after accompanist, but in which he also supplied many a happy evening for me as he played and I sang together with many of our friends. And of course, Political science was never totally eclipsed either. Now here I would have to admit we often differed, yet how did he deal with my rock-ribbed Kansas conservatism? Always as a friend, always as a brother, graciously, kindly, and never in condescension. And how true it was that he stood as a brother in our time of deepest dis- adversity, for he made sure in those times to pray earnestly with me and for my family, that we might find the healing balm of the Holy Spirit, the great comforter. As the years passed, our relationship continued, although in less abundance, and it was with great regard in more recent years that I came to experience David's strong support and wise counsel as a faithful member of the Eastvale Session. So in reality, my cousin David became throughout these many years my dear friend and, in truth, my brother. Today, a great loss to me, a great loss to the church and the college, a great loss to his family, but what, what a gain for him now that he stands before his Lord and Savior, awaiting the glorious consummation of history in the promised
0: resurrection. Thank you so much. I promised myself that I wouldn't say some of my own remembrances, but you've triggered one, Norman, when you said that he's gone on, but his work remains. When I got out of the military... And came here as a sophomore, not knowing what I was to do. David was my advisor. And I'm where I am to some extent from the counsel he gave me on that day. So some of us live on with that testimony. Now, one of David's favorite Psalms, maybe it was his favorite, it's hard to pick a favorite. Psalm 103, you have it there. Bless the Lord, my soul, my whole heart. Let's sing these four stanzas as uh, Bill Weir, his nephew, whom I failed to introduce, will continue to lead us. Ooh.
4: Ooh.
5: Bless the Lord, my soul, my whole heart.
0: no gathering of this sort would be appropriate without some attention to the Word of God. And we're happy to focus our attention now on that Word, being led first of all in the reading of that Word by Doug Carson, a nephew of David and Margaret, and then a message from Brother Jim. So we'll wait on you now.
6: You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven, you have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel.
7: Many of you know the Carson emotional reputation, that we have a hard time getting through things. And so some of you may be wondering, along with members of my family, how I was persuaded to be here today on this occasion, with this assignment. Well, I have nieces who used some gentle persuasion But I can't blame them because at the bottom line, I said to myself, I really want to do it for him and for them. Now, you need to know that David and I were not twins. (laughs) But we were able to confuse a lot of people along the way. One day, just a few weeks ago, I was visiting David at the RP home. David was going back to his room down one hallway, and I was just around the corner in another hallway. And uh, there was an aide that was pushing a patient in a wheelchair. And she came around the corner and looked at me, and it was a terrified look (laughs) that came across her face and she said I just saw you around the corner (laughs) and you weren't dressed like this. (laughs) Since moving to Beaver Falls seven years ago, a little more than that, so many people have stopped me to tell me their appreciation and they would start the conversation something like this This is sort of a composite conversation. Dr. Carson, I'm so glad to see you, because I want to thank you for the great class you taught in political science at Geneva. You're one of my favorite teachers. You made political science come alive. I really had another major, and I didn't really want to take the class, but I had to take it, and it turned out to be one of my favorite classes, and I would say, Oh, my, it's good to hear that. (laughs) And then, of course, in all honesty, I had to say, that's my brother you're speaking about. But that was the point of it all. I always had pride in my brother. It was easy to say, that's my brother, my big brother, my older brother. While Dave and I had differing views, different gifts, we acknowledged that. We were close and returned to each other often. While we disagreed, we did not ever break the love of brothers. We both learned to know the love of God for us, and we experienced love and appreciation for each other. (coughs) As we turn to the biblical text that was just read, I would ask that you pray with me, partly my voice, and for you, not just uh, for this service, but more importantly, that God's Spirit would take his word and apply it to each heart, as only God's Spirit can do. The New Galilee Cemetery is a small but very pretty and well-maintained cemetery alongside a country-meandering stream. It is the final resting place for many loved ones of persons represented here in this audience today. This morning, the family was at the gravesite where David was laid to his temporary resting place. I say temporary, not because the family has plans to move his coffin but because God himself has told us of his plans to do just that. So we read in Thessalonians for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with a voice of an archangel with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Do you get goosebumps? Would you hear that, the scripture text that was read for this message was chosen by the family, was one in which I fully concurred. It was a passage of scripture that was read to David several times in the closing days of his life. When it seemed to us that he could not hear, but we trust that God would take his word right to David's mind and heart and give him hope and comfort In a way that we could not. This text, like so many in Hebrews, brings us right to the heart of the gospel. (coughs) It is not only a message about the gospel, but in a real sense, a description of the pattern that David sought to live by, and to preach, and to teach. It is a passage worth spending additional time. And I encourage you to think about these words in meditation as we leave this place today and in the coming days. Instead of trying to cover the whole passage, I want to suggest what I will call trail markers. The blotches of paint on the trunk of a tree that indicate that you are still on the right path. Dave and I like to hike together. We just didn't do enough of it. If any of you find these trail markers helpful and don't have a way of writing them down just now, just get in touch with me. I'm not hard to find. You just go looking for Dave and you'll see me. (laughs) Instead of trying to, uh, the first trail marker is one that I got from a book on Hebrews written by a personal friend of mine, a seminary professor. And he says that the whole book of Hebrews, including this passage, is a message about, and here's the key phrase, living on the borders of eternity. I read that over and over and over again. The borders of eternity. Theologians like to talk about the already and the not yet. This text teaches us about the privileges and blessings we have now, in the light of eternity. In one sense, we are all living on the borders of eternity. But Christians are different. They consciously seek this out. They consciously want to know what it is to live on the borders of eternity. What does it mean to be a citizen of some national entity and at the same time have citizenship in heaven? Jesus taught that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. Like, what does that mean? What does it mean to be in the world as we seek a world view and a world concern? We all struggle with questions like this, and we know how often we come short of final answers or even appropriate answers. You will recognize these as poli-sci questions. They are questions Brother Dave thought about and studied and sought to apply, first in his own life and then in the wider opportunities. They may well be discussed in academic settings, of course, But ultimately, they must be worked out in the everyday life of a person, in our families, in our churches, in the workplace, in community. David regularly sought the guidance of God's Spirit every day in all that he did, seeking guidance because he believed it to be essential in every part of life. The tributes that you've seen before the service today on the screen Suggest that David touched the hearts of many, not by the thunder of teaching, but oftentimes by the still small voice, and his influence continues. That's the first trail marker. Here's another one. Meditate on the contrast between the phrase, you have not come, and you have come. <clears throat> the first place spoken of in this text, you have not come, is a place of fear, threats of punishment, prohibitions so awesome that the people who heard them became afraid and asked God not to speak to them anymore. This place is really a description of Mount Sinai, an actual place, The place that you could climb, you could take pictures of it if you'd had a camera, you could pick up the stones and throw them around. You could determine the height of the mountain. The other place you have come is a spiritual one in nature. You can't take pictures of any part of the description that was read in the text. The reality exceeds what our minds can grasp. It's like trying to explain or describe the Grand Canyon or Yosemite Valley or the ocean to people who have never seen any of these. They can't imagine it until they see the reality in person. One more thing about the phrase, you have come. It does not say you will come. It says you have come. This is the already and the not yet. Meditate on this passage. Meditate on what it tells you, what it tells all of us about what we already possess, even though we are still in this life. And then meditate on the verbal images of what the not yet looks like. It is overwhelming. We possess some of it now. But the reality of it all the weights are crossing the border. If you have been to David's house, perhaps you know the favorite chair by the window that looked out over the trees and on down to the Tower of Old Maine. This was a place where David meditated and prayed and thought about the present in the light of eternity. Even as his memory was slipping, he would take me to that window and have me look with him down through the trees to Old Main. He dearly loved that location and the view, but I sometimes wondered if he saw something beyond Old Main. There's a third trail marker. It's this. Meditate on what it teaches us about life in heaven. That is, what are we coming to? You have come. To so what have you come? We'll see innumerable angels. The Bible teaches that there are angels all about us, sent to be messengers of God's will and purpose. <laughs> <coughs> <coughs> messengers to protect us from harm. We do not see them, but they are real and they are all around us. Well I cannot prove it, I'm quite certain, Of several occasions in which God's angels have protected me. And I'm sure my children would agree. Do you suppose those protecting angels will introduce themselves to us and tell us about the dangers that He protected us from? In heaven, we will see them. We will see innumerable angels. So many of them, they can't be counted. They're everywhere. In Revelation, there is a description, a designation, many angels numbering myriads and thousands of thousands. You see, this is another one of those already, but not yet. The angels are real. We don't see them. But they are there. And the Lord one day will give us eyes to see them. Another site in heaven is the gathering of the firstborn, that is, believers from all ages of time gathered together. It is so easy to, it is so tempting to speculate about matters, the Bible, to which the Bible does not give us any information, but we know from this that there will be an enormous, enormous host of people gathered around the throne. There is another description of these people, They're called the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? The answer is the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness. Perfect. Perfect in holiness. And they immediately pass into glory. Can you, in your most vivid imagination, Understand what it would be like to be perfectly holy. I know I'm not, and I don't have much of a clue on what it would really be like to be perfectly holy. And you know that you're not. I know that I'm not. But this is another of those already and yet, not yet, because the Bible tells us that he looks upon us as the saints, the ones set apart, the ones who are holy. So that's what we live with today in the already we are saints, but in the not yet we will understand what it really means to be perfectly holy. I trust there is no one present here who does not long to be made perfectly holy, be present with Jesus, with Jesus forever. Several people said to me in the visitation line yesterday, I'm looking forward more each day to be in the presence of Jesus. And I joined them. Wherever you are in your Christian life, spend some time meditating on this truth of what this passage that was read for us tells us about What life is like here, but the promise of a better life coming. The fourth and the final trail marker that I will mention is the most important. Listen, it is God is there. God is there. God is the final judge. Jesus is there and he is the mediator who shed his blood on Calvary's cross Because we put him there with our sins. And he bore the penalty that we deserved. In the end, you see, it is not about us. The message of the whole Bible is about Jesus. And Jesus is the subject of this passage. Nothing that we have mentioned thus far would have any meaning at all without Jesus. This service is not about David. Yes, it is a memorial service, but it is really about Jesus. He would not want it to be about him. He would want it to be about his Savior, the Lord Jesus. I suspect that no one present here ever heard David brag about himself or his achievements. Any hands? (laughs) I didn't think so. It was always about other people. And most of all, about Jesus. Nothing that he ever preached or taught was, in his mind, anything other than ultimately pointing to Jesus. So many of the tributes on Geneva's webpage are about how he encouraged others and helped them along the way. For you see, he lived his life on the borders of eternity. And he is now enjoying it and will forever and ever. Now the whole book of Hebrews is written to a Christian audience and contains warnings and teachings about not losing the way. And therefore the first application has to be to Christians. Perhaps there are some here who are believers. But perhaps you haven't come as you want to come to this place described in this passage. Perhaps you know that this is a time for you to think seriously about what it really means to live on the borders of eternity. There is, of course, always in the Bible a message to those who have not yet come. To the place described in this chapter. To come is a conscious decision, a conscious decision to live and walk with Jesus. There has to be an intentionality about it. Then all the pictures of heaven described here will take on new meaning. They will give hope and confidence for the remainder of your life on earth on into eternity Jesus said come come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy And my burden is light. The Apostle John, with eyes on the second coming of Jesus, brings the book of Revelation to a close by quoting Jesus, who says, I am coming soon. And we join in John's response, Even so come, Lord Jesus.
6: Amen.
0: the lord is king indeed so begins psalm 99 some people would put christ's kingship as the not yet the bible puts jesus ascension and his seated being seated at the right hand of god as the already And he rules as king, and he will come as king. We honor him as we sing this psalm. And I suggest that we stand to sing this. Ninety-nine. certainly very appropriate for us to have on the platform two of David's long-term colleagues. They'll speak for themselves, but it's a pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Howard Matson bose and Dr. Ann Payton. They will speak in that order.
8: Can you say, after you've seen all of these things, the messages on the email, the recognition of David's work? And by the way, I called him David or Dave sometimes. But when you, many of you saw the, the pictures on the screen, the messages on the screen, describing the outpouring of affection and appreciation from faculty and staff and just about everyone. What a remarkable person he was. And particularly, I regard him as a special friend. Uh, I'm not here because I'm any smarter than anybody else, but I, he condescended to be my friend. I came here in 1962 in the fall and started my career and almost instantly became David's friend and this was a friendship that went on for years and ran deep and it's hard to explain even actually how people become friends, but we became friends with one another. When a campus political issue or sort of the kind of things that faculty and people debate, when those arose, I would often go over to his office. Vent my opinions, um, and he would listen and talk me down, so to speak. <laughs> you, usually, we would be in agreement because, of course, I was on his side. <clears throat> but even when we weren't, we were on the same wavelength. It was a, it was a wonderful relationship, and and. <clears throat> One time very early in my career I had the, had, excuse me for a second here, I was experiencing the death of, of President Kennedy, that was in November of 40, of the whatever year that was. I didn't write that in my notes because I usually remembered those kinds of dates, but um, I was going home for lunch, I had just gone home for lunch and came back on to the campus and Louise Copeland, not then, Copeland, and a bunch of students were in a car and they shouted out to me, the president is dead, or the president has been shot. Well I wasn't sure what she meant by that because we had a president of the college as well. And uh, I had to sort of sort out which president we were talking about. But when, when it occurred, my immediate reaction was to go to David's office in Smith House. Smith House was located on where, where the dining hall is now. And to vent myself in saying, oh, those blankety-blank right-wingers my politics show up every once in a while. Um, but we talked about it and worked our way through it, and we did this over and over again. We, we had a kind of friendly relationship that ran deep and powerfully. So every time I needed counsel, I could go to David and he would provide it and help correct me and challenge me when I was wrong. But uh, it was a beautiful relationship and I am thankful for it. After he retired, of course, we saw each other less often, but we still maintained the friendship and relationship. And some of you know that we had a sort of classic uh, Thursday lunch, in front in the, the old the dining hall and the, he needed it and i needed it and i think i'm not sure what effect that had in the long run but i suspect that it extended his life uh, or his vital life longer than he would have received otherwise because it was important to me to give him the call and and to speak with him and I think it was important for him too. I know that the family were appreciative of that. The um, one of the, what David was fundamentally, however, a teacher. That's what his gift was, and he had a lot of gifts. But he was fundamentally a teacher. He received, as you were reminded, the first. Um, Teacher of the Year Award back in 1982, and this was a remarkable accomplishment for somebody who was teaching a course that every last student had to take in this campus, and a lot of them approached the subject with trepidation or skepticism or active dislike. But but he he invented the course, great great issues in politics. And he presented that course to every student in a way that and forced them to come to terms with the issues of politics. Politics in David's life, in a certain sense, was everything, or we should say every, everything that he talked about in politics was moral, biblical, religious, Powerful times. And many times in this rigorous and demanding course, the students switched from antipathy to enthusiasm. Not all of them. Um, And there were other people who who, uh, continued to be skeptical, but almost everyone who went through this college got an education in that one class, and I'm sure I see several, several of you nodding your heads uh, out there. Uh, one of the reasons he was such a remarkable teacher was his deep respect for people. There was none. There was nobody whom you could get who would be more clear in re, in relating to the people uh, of. Excuse me a second here. Because he responded to the even the stupid questions. He, I think he didn't believe that there was a stupid question, or it was a blank spot in his um, mind. But, but he he would take a question that seemed stupid to many people and use it to bring new light on the subject and respectfully correct them in ways that were even painless. He didn't even have to put the knife in, in the... Uh, okay. So he elicited respect from students and he gave them respect. He exemplified in many ways a statement by C.S. Lewis who said, there are no ordinary people. He believed that everybody had. Now, he, things weren't always perfect like that. I'm giving you the, the positive side, and uh, I don't want you to go out here from here and canonize a saint, especially in a covenanter or um, <laughs> tradition.
4: <laughs>
8: because there were times when he lapsed, um, Every once in a while, he would lose his cool and uh, had a class where students were not entirely prepared. And uh, one time, for example, he, uh, or at least one time, more than once, he would take his book, slam it shut, walk out of the room in mid-class, and so forth. This happened very seldom, but it just reminded us that that he was an actual person, and not a But the students, by the way, he would never have used the word cool. (laughs) But David was also part of a, a larger entity he was a significant faculty member, and people learned to love and appreciate him. But he was also part of a larger Geneva community, which I, is a, needs to be reminded. We need to be reminded of, for example, I. There are a number of people, some of whom are actually in this audience, who provided what I call ballast from this institution. There was a kind of gravitas that David and a number of other people, I won't name them at this point, but who, who helped make this institution what it is. I stand here as somebody who is proud of Geneva College, proud of its faithfulness to the scriptures, proud of, proud of its faithfulness to learning and, and care. And there are many faculty members, gone, some of whom have gone on and some of whom are still here, who keep the ballast, keeps the ship from t- tipping over. And David was one of those sorts of people. God has blessed the institution with people like him and a number of others, people of wide exp- expertise in deep faith who have kept this institution on track. And David was then one of the central figures in this godly group of people who, and you, the fact that you're here this evening, this afternoon, what time is it? Um, (laughs) The fact that you're here indicates your agreement with that kind of statement, and those statements that were on the board so when we look at David Carson, we see a man of great humility, you've heard about that. Obviously brilliant, Phi Beta Kappa from Yale, but he was utterly selfless person. He was interested in you, and I particularly felt that towards me. I was a friend, and I was a friend that he benefited very much for. He did not use, he did not despise his gift nor use it to gain power or wealth, but he used it to stimulate clear thinking and deep understanding of politics and all of life. Students may have, who may have dreaded his course came to appreciate it and appreciate the perspective that Dr. David Carson brought to the subject. I might say, in case any of you are wondering, his politics and mine were closer, were relatively close. People, you know, identify me as a liberal which, with at least a small L. And, um, and but, but David was on my side, so there. <laughs> um, with humor and insight And challenge, he actually made his students think, and in most cases, to love it. David Carson was the very model of a Christian professor and person, and I'm proud to have been his friend. I'll miss him.
9: Well, what does one say? Well, I was just remembering a faculty meeting years ago and I don't even remember what we were talking about, but it was a long meeting with spirited debate on both sides and several angles. And toward the end of the meeting, one faculty person got up and said, I agree with everything that's been said. (laughs) Well, that's how I feel right now. And here I am in what is in baseball the cleanup spot. (laughs) So I think that there won't be anything new here. And indeed, why am I here? I have no title. I have no claim to a place in this service, except unless friend be a title and love a claim save that in the warp and woof of my life, David Carson's presence has been a constant recurring royal blue. The weaving of our lives began more than a half century ago when there were giants in the earth. Or so it seemed to me in the fall of 1958 when I came to my first Geneva College faculty meeting. I stood in the doorway wondering what on earth I was doing here looking for a back seat and wishing I were invisible. What did I see? David Carson, Norman Carson, Stuart Lee, Willard McMillan, Roy Adams, and others too, of course. But these are they who, for most of the 36 years I was on this faculty, defined Geneva College. For many of you, those may be just names, and so why bring them up? Well, for the same reason that Homer in the Iliad tells us the names of the heroes on those ships. And the biblical history every now and then pauses to give us a list of begats so that we may know where we came from, be inspired by our heroes, and most importantly, remember that in God's history, each of us has a name. How easy it would have been on that fall day in 1958 for David Carson, already a star, to ignore or condescend to a young, no name woman. Well, perhaps not ignore, because Margaret knew me. But from the outside, he welcomed me as an equal in the academy and as a friend. And that acceptance from him made it possible for me to become those very things there were giants in the earth and among them David Carson stood tall knowing that David loved literature I wanted to honor him on this occasion by invoking some famed literary figure of like mind and spirit so for inspiration I went to a David place McCartney library and I looked at the stained-glass windows Milton's Paradise Lost, Magnificent Poetry, Cosmic in Scope. Yes, that's David. But what about Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress? Robust prose, a dogged and brave trek through the realities of Christian pilgrimage. The Slough of Despond, Vanity Fair, The Valley of the Shadow of Death. Yes, yes, that was David too. But I think that the writer who most closely approximates the mind and heart, the brilliance and soul of David Carson was John Donne, that famed 17th century preacher and poet, renowned for his ready wits, powerful intellect, vast learning, love of music, and his passionate devotion to Christ. Now that's David. John Donne wrote a hymn which pictures the Christian as a musician summoned to the court of the king. Before entering, he stands at the door and tunes his instrument, rather like Daniel Townsend tuning his violin. Hear the text of Donne's hymn. Since I am coming to that holy room where with thy choir of saints forevermore I shall be made thy music. As I come... I tune the instrument at the door, and what I must do then, think here, before. That was David Carson, his whole life tuning up for eternity in the presence of the king. He tuned, as you have heard many times, the strings of intellect and of teaching. He was a master teacher. His name leads all the rest, and rightly so. He created, as you've heard, that Great Issues in Politics course, still the capstone of the core curriculum. Think of it, day after day, year after year, meeting young people with young minds, unformed and uninformed. (laughs) That endless pile of blue books and papers that Christie mentioned. With his brilliant mind, David could have demolished them all. But he chose rather to lead them beyond familiar margins into broad spaces they had never even known existed. He taught them to think. We have oft noted Dave's, David's love. It, by the way, it was several years before I could come to bring, call him by his first name. I'm with the president on that one. We, all, we have oft noted David's love of music. Many a time he sat in this very room, listening appreciatively to student recitals or guest performances. He seldom missed one. His own hands on the keyboard were equally at home with Mozart or Bach, Chopin or Mendelssohn, or Old MacDonald Has a Farm. <laughs> David was a lover of words, a careful tuner of language. Words fitly spoken, sentences crafted, paragraphs shaped in comely forms. Concerning David's lecture on a landmark Supreme Court decision, a friend said, What is forever in my memory is David's Brown versus Board lecture. His understanding and compassion reached my heart. Yes, David could weep, but he could also totally collapse. With helpless laughter. I loved talking with David, what he said, of course, but also how he said it in impeccable English. You would have never heard David say, I think I'll lay down for a while.
4: <laughs>
9: or, God has showered many blessings on my wife and I. <laughs> He knew the subjunctive mood (laughs) and the possessive case before the gerund. And furthermore, he knew what those words meant. (laughs) And now only I am left. This morning while I was stuffing Kleenex into my purse, I heard David say, you know, Anne, I think the plural of Kleenex is Kleeneces.
4: <laughs>
9: <laughs> but it wasn't a matter of being pernickety. It was a matter of respect for the language and for the person with whom he spoke. In the same way that long after other men stopped doing so, David stood up when a lady came into the room. That was not a manner, it was a gesture of deep courtesy. Yes, all his life, David Carson was tuning for that day when the king's door would open and he would be welcomed into that company of saints and angels who ever sing praises to God's name. For David, that door opened last Thursday morning, and he entered that place John Donne envisions with these words. And into that gate they shall enter, and in that house they shall dwell, where there shall be no cloud nor sun, no darkness nor dazzling, but one equal light, no noise nor silence, but one equal music, no ends nor beginnings, but one equal eternity. So here we are at the door, at the door. Tuning our instruments. And even at the grave we sing our song. Hallelujah.
0: Makes me want to go back to college. (laughs) Well, we come to the conclusion of this wonderful time of remembrance and challenge from the Word because we're all living on the border. Thank you, Jim, for that word. I'm told that it was Margie's desire, we don't ask a spouse to speak, and I'm not going to, (laughs) so be at peace. But she has spoken to us by choosing the final psalm. This is what we will sing, Psalm 134, Margie's choice. But, sing it thinking of God. Let's stand as we sing. <clears throat>
5: oh, blow oh, oh, oh. with praises to Jehovah, blessing and reward, our Lord. All of you who for service to Jehovah. The dwelling of the Lord, standing I be in the dwelling of the Lord. Toward For this holy sanctuary.
0: As we conclude in prayer, how would you pray? Take a moment and just speak to him silently. I'll conclude it. And then, would you please be seated for an announcement? Let's pray. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do bless you, and we thank you for this place where we meet, where David and his colleagues served and are serving, and lives are being touched with your truth, how we thank you. And we ask that you'll continue that ministry of David and Margie in this place and throughout your kingdom to the honor and glory of Christ forever and ever. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated.